Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Redemption Life Church. Listen as Pastor Michael Cox teaches on what are you worth. I want to kind of continue with where we've been for the last few weeks. I just didn't make them bring the board up here because I figured there was already enough stuff up here that we didn't need that board for me to write that one equation on again. But we've been talking for the last several weeks about properly evaluating um, the worth of Christ in the outcome of our lives. And so we made it as an algebraic equation where you have multiple numbers that represent multiple circumstances and situations, but when you add the X to them, the answer, the intention, the will of God, his promise is holiness whole, complete, and lacking nothing. And so no matter what the other variables of your life are, if you get your faith in the X right, if you get what he can do right, what he has done right, then it will transform everything else and it will equal to holy. And so we have talked about that for several weeks. Last week we talked about how that uh, applies to our finances and calculating rightly um, what we do with what we have. You know, we've got him. If you want to prove an equation, you have to, you know, once you get the answer, you work your way back, right? I told you last week that was my least favorite thing in math. Number one, I didn't understand why we had to write anything down. If I could do the problem in my head, then that should be good enough, you know? And uh, if you're smarter than the math teacher, then that should be okay, right? I mean, why do I have to prove anything to him? So, that's the way I thought when I was in fifth grade. But anyways, if he has to do all those problems and I can do it in my head, I should teach him how to do it in his head, right? (laughs) But they make me write all these problems down. Then, not only did you have to write them down to get the answer, then they want you to go back and write them a different way to prove the answer. You know, it's just so ridiculous. So we talked about proving from Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you want to prove what the will of God is, you take your body, you take your everyday life, and you offer it as worship, which is worth shaping. So you take everything that you can possibly do in a day or with your life or with your body, and you shape the worth of that in surrender to him. And so that means you take the X and you let the X inform the worth of all the other menial things that you do in your life. Okay? And so you get the answer right, so you get the X right, so then what's left is you let those things determine what you do with what you're responsible for. So that it equals the right answer. And so proving the will of God is knowing God's will which is for us to prosper and be in good health, even as our soul prospers, right? Knowing the provision of the cross and how that can bring us to his will. And then we live a life, okay? We take care of the variables of our life as an act of worship that in partnership and in covenant with Christ equals being holy, complete, and lacking nothing. And so that's how we prove what the will of God is. And so we talked about finances last week. And uh, I sang a little song for y'all from, uh, what's that movie? Uh, the Greatest Showman, Never Enough. 
right? And some of us, that's the song of our heart. We sing it every day in every situation. Never enough. Never, never, right? And so it, it, the X didn't change. God's intention didn't change. If we're always never enough, then something about what we're doing with the variables of our life is what is off, right? And so that's where we have to stand on his word, believing what he says, and apply it to our life, okay? And so today I want to talk about another area. If, you'll, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15. The reason why we're breaking this down over the last few weeks, I told you maybe three weeks ago, whenever it was, when I first brought this to you and this formula and these all these equations that freaked us out because there were a bunch of weird ones on the board, you know. But when we talked about all that and we talked about letting Christ have his proper place, I realized after that day that there just wasn't enough practical application to what I shared that day. And so that was the overarching embodiment, I believe, of his intention of how we apply the cross to our life and so hopefully that day we decided we want to let it have the influence in our life, but I think we need to break it down into some particular areas of our life of how we can actually do it, right? And so that's what I've been trying to do over the last few weeks. And so today we want to look at another place that informs our worth and see how we properly let our worth be to come out with wholeness, complete and lacking nothingness. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to read almost this entire story, this entire chapter this morning. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Now he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. How he set him up, I'm sorry. Uh, against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. And do not spare him. It's pretty straightforward, right? And do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. All right? So that's just kind of the backstory, what the instruction was and how Saul began to move forward with those instructions. In verse 8, here's where it goes sideways. He captured 
Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Okay? Now, did you see what he said to do to him? Uh, strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. Okay? So he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Now look at verse 9. But Saul and the people, say Saul and the people. Saul and the people. Spared, who, who spared Agag? Okay, spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Okay? Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Verse 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They... See that? Who spared the animals? Who did he tell? Samuel spared the oxen. And the, they have brought them from the Amalekites who, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen. The people. Who did? No, who did? <laughs> there you go. Uh, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Look at that. He just so eloquently omits himself from all of the wrong things and then inserts himself on what he perceives to be the right things. <laughs> they did all that, but we did destroy all the stuff we perceived to have no value of keeping. See the miscalculation? What God said is not how we form our worth. How we calculate things in man's perspective is how we calculate what to destroy, what not to destroy, what to sacrifice, what not to sacrifice, right? Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. 
Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, <coughs> man, this guy, I did obey the voice of the Lord. See, I was already studying this, so that's kind of what made me think that when we sang that song earlier today. I did do exactly what the Lord says, so now he's obligated to fulfill all his promises in my life. Did you? I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Verse 21, but the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Look, he got to where he first was putting it all on everybody else. This is how it is when we try to rationalize with God. Then when Saul is answering the question himself, he says, I did do all that, I did do all that, and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. He, in his own recounting of the story, forgets what the story was supposed to be. Like, you know, he was, he was doing good at the beginning of putting all the bad stuff on other people and all the praise on himself, but then he just kind of forgets that he was supposed to kill Agag, Right? So he's telling the story again. Isn't that how it is? How many times can you tell the story the same way if you're trying to bluff God? And eventually you're like, God, I did it just how you said with slight variations because I really wanted it a different way. <laughs> we have a little progress here in the truth, right? Samuel says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. You got me. Let's move on. No one can judge me but God. Why do people want to call me on my sin? I did it. I'm sorry, if you ever bring it up again, you're judgmental and hateful. Right? I have those conversations a lot with people. You probably don't. People may not care what you think about them. They do me for some reason, and so they want me to tell them they're perfect. Therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. I never saw that till this week studying this. Do you see when, I don't have time to go into it today, but when you 
when you compare the heart of David to the heart of Saul, do you realize they both tore the edge of a robe? And they both tore the edge of the robe to uh, find a place of worth before people? They both did. The difference is when David cut a piece of Saul's robe to prove that he could have taken him and he wanted to be known as the person who could have taken him but didn't, his heart smote him and he felt conviction. Saul never did. When Nathan went to David in uh, 2 Samuel 12, I believe it is, and told him the story about the man who only had one sheep and the guy took the sheep from him and all this stuff, and David was so angry, and he said, this was you. You did that to Uriah when you took Bathsheba from him and had him killed. And David said, I have sinned. David didn't say, will you please come and praise me in front of the people? Will you please forgive me? Will you please anything? He just says, I have sinned. And he was broken. Difference in their heart. But, so he tore his corner of his robe. Where is that at? Where was I? So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom from Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but, <laughs> yeah, I sinned, but, please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. I believe the root of Saul's demise is his fear of man and who he allowed to shape his worth. I stumbled on, well, I wouldn't say stumbled on, I was searching diligently for different things and different studies this week on the fear of man and how we, how, why it has such a strong hold on us, why we're geared and wired and why it's so difficult. And, um, this is a really great thing. I'm, I think I'm just going to read this. Um, each of us instinctively knows as creatures that who we are and what we're worth are not things we define ourselves. Okay? We didn't create ourselves. We didn't choose our DNA, intellectual and physical power, families, cultures, early education, time periods, or most other major influences. We are not autonomous, but contingent creatures. This means we all know deep down that we can't just say, I'm Superman. I'm Spider-Man. We are living in a culture that is beginning to think that you can just say you are whatever you say you are, and you are. But that's insanity, right? And so we all deep down know that we can't, we can't define our worth. And so 
there has to be an external voice that defines our worth. So every human is created by God to, have to know that they must be defined by a voice. Okay? That's not something that's evil. That's not something that's bad. That's something that can be corrupted. But we know that we were helpless and had no determining force that we were born in the United States or we were born in Germany or we were born in Russia or we were born... We had no determining force in that, right? And so even if it goes to parents or educators or somebody, we all have to look back at our life and we attribute who we are, who we've become, our worth all has to be attributed to somebody else because we were never autonomous in our life. And so external forces defined us and created us, right? And so we all know that. And that in itself is not a bad thing. And each one of us also instinctively knows our existence fits into a larger purpose or story. And despite postmodernism's attempts to convince us otherwise, it is impossible for us to create our own ultimate meaning. Deep down we know such self-created meaning is absurd. So the meaning of your life, you can't just self-determine. We know that. And there's such, there's such, uh, there's such devastation and there's such uh, purposelessness that's, predominant in the culture that tries to self-define who they are. Have you noticed that? The culture that tries to self-define and thinks that they can just make up a purpose for their life and that's what it is or make up who they are just so happens to have the highest suicide rates in the world. So people that try to rage against that there's something that defines our purpose are people that are the most purposeless and the most devastated people on the planet and so there is it's absurd to think there's a self-created meaning so we cannot help but derive our identity value and meaning from external sources you cannot help it you were created to derive who you are from external sources you were created to that when he created Adam and Eve, he created them so he could walk with them in the cool of the day and tell them who they are. Yes. And so all of us, we cannot help but derive our identity, value, and meaning from external sources. Moreover, not only external sources, but we instinctively seek them from external personal sources. We know deep down they are bestowed upon us by a person. So not only do we look for external forces, we don't just take the predominance of our existence and the meaning of it that I was born in Knoxville. 
it has to come from a person. Okay? Are you beginning to see how this could be perverted? So we're created to be defined by a person. We're created to be defined by a voice. And so that can make us susceptible to look to the wrong voice or voices in our life. The person to whom we ascribe most authority. Here's who you're going to give the most authority to. To define who we are, what we're worth, what we should do, and how we should do it is the person we honor the most. It's the person whose approval we want the most. God designed us this way, for it reveals who and what our heart loves. This fear comes right from the place where our heart's treasure is stored. It's a fear of losing or not obtaining something we really desire, which is why it wields so much power over us. The beautiful thing is, is we have an invitation through Christ to live our life from a place of approval. It doesn't mean we can do whatever we want and it gets the stamp of approval, but we don't have to do things to get approval. We can do things out of the overflow of the approval and we want to continue to walk the path that has already been approved. But in culture and in fear of man, we are never enough. We can never have enough money, we talked about last week, and we can never have enough approval of man. Never. So if you get your focus, okay, God's desire is us for, for us to be holy. He sent his son to inform us and in all the other parameters of our life that would make us always equal holy, right? But if we take our life and instead of offering it to him, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, and we offer it to the world, we worth shape in the opinions of the world, then we will, the cross will be powerless to inform us. We have the ability to reject the voice of the cross and accept the voice of culture. We have the ability to reject the voice of the cross and accept the voice of a mom or a dad. Or somebody abusive that tells us you're not worth it. You're not all this stuff. But you have to, you have to ignore the cross to believe the lie. So the susceptibility of going somewhere else for approval is no human has the power to give you the worth you were created to carry. So not only will it never be enough, the reason it's never enough is no one is full of endless worth so their words can speak who you truly are. No one can speak it. No one has the vocabulary. No pastor can even do it. No amazing prophetic psalmist can even do it. He has to tell you who you are. 
He can use people to reiterate it. He can use people to, to do it. But as soon, even the people who are speaking things into your life, when you turn your attention and your affection to them to define your worth, they'll come up short. They'll come up short. Even a blind squirrel gets a nut every now and then. Even a goofy pastor will be able to tell you something true every now and then. But I sure am not going to attribute all of my worth and who I am by the voice of a man or a woman. And not because they would even intend to do wrong. They just do not have the power. I'm too worthy for another man to be able to communicate it to me. I'm too holy for my wife to ever be able to tell me I'm enough. So if I count on my wife to tell me I'm enough, she never can. She can resonate what he says about me. She can enforce what he says about me. She can send me on a path to hear what he says about me. But if she is the final voice in my worth, I'll never be enough. Never enough. <laughs> Proverbs twenty nine twenty five. The fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Look at it in the message. The fear of human opinion disables. Trusting in God protects you from that. Look at it in the passion. Fear and intimidation is a trap that holds you back. But when you place your confidence in the Lord, you will be seated in the high place. Acts 5, 29, but Peter and the apostles answered when they told them, they to we told you to quit preaching. We must obey God rather than men. Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong, take courage, don't be intimidated. Don't give a second thought because God, your God, is striding ahead of you. He's right there with you. He won't let you down. He won't leave you. No voice has the power, has the authority to define your worth. And again, the person to whom we ascribe the most authority is the person we obey. Whether it be God or whether it be culture. Whether it be God or whether it be pressure from those around you.
Look at Luke chapter 14. <clears throat> While you're looking that up, isn't it amazing? Just so happens that such a high percentage of the time what God tells us to do is what we wanted to do. Isn't it amazing how many times God tells us to do things and it contradicts how he tells us to do things throughout Scripture? Yet we justify it because... It really comes down to the fear of man. We want man, the praise of man. Like I said, I don't remember a few weeks ago, I think people who are going to do whatever they want and not let God inform their decisions should wear a T-shirt and say, I claim Christ, but I don't let him inform my life. So don't follow me. I have no problem with loving people doing whatever they want to do and loving them into the kingdom. I have a problem with people that claim to be in the kingdom and don't and do things that directly contradict the ways of the kingdom. If I had a nickel for every time somebody told me God's calling me to do this thing, I'd be so rich. And again, not that the pastor is the be-all, end-all, and you got to go to him for approval. He's the only one that knows what God's saying. But did you talk to anybody? Did you get any counsel or any wisdom on it? People come to me and say, Pastor, I love you, man. I just, I just, I, I honor you, and I just, I really respect you as my pastor, so I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do and what I've already done. I'm like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> this statement has come out of my mouth more times than I would like to say it, but I tell people sometimes, look, if you don't trust me, find somebody you do trust. Just find somebody. But this course you're taking that you're ascribing to Christ is not what he would lead people to do. And I clearly do not have the voice to tell you that. So find someone who does. I love you, but find someone who does. It's like a... The passage, every way, every, through every temptation, he'll make a way of escape. And people are like, I just don't know which way to go. I don't know which way to go, and the sign is like flashing, you know. This is the way of escape, right? And it's like, this is the way of pleasure. And I just, I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure what God's saying right now. And I tell people all the time, you're not confused. Y'all should be able to say it for me at this point. 
You're conformed. You're not confused. You're conformed. You've let culture and your own desires inform your decisions for so long that you no longer recognize the voice of God speaking to you. And you even confuse it with his voice. Anyway, Luke chapter 14. Jesus noticed how the guests for the meal were all vying for the seats of honor. He shared this story with the guests around the table. When you are invited to an important social function, don't be quick to sit near the head of the table, choosing the seat of honor. What will happen when someone more distinguished than you arrives? The host will then bring him over to where you are sitting and ask for your seat, saying in front of all the guests, you're in the wrong seat. Please give this person your seat. Disgraced, you will, ha you will have to take whatever seat is left. Instead, when you're invited to a banquet, you should choose to sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes and sees you there, he may say, my friend, come with me and let me seat you in a better place. Then in front of all the other guests and at the banquet, you will be honored and seated in the place of highest respect. Remember this, everyone with a lofty opinion of who he is and who he seeks to raise and who seeks to raise himself up will be humbled before all and everyone with a modest opinion of who he is and chooses to humble himself will be raised up before all look at the last part of that in the message when you're invited to dinner go and sit in the last place then when the host comes he may very well say friend come up to the front that will give the dinner guests something to talk about what I'm saying is this is what I want you to hear if you walk around with your nose in the air you're going to end up flat on your face but if you're content to simply be yourself you will be more than yourself It's not thinking lowly of ourselves. Man, we've been talking about seating in the throne and being kings and all this stuff, but our culture has it all messed up about what a king is. A king is one that provides protection and provision for all the other people. It's not the person that the people protect and provide for. So you sit in the lowest seat and you let God raise you up. But when we are constantly trying to position ourselves in the best seat. Man, everybody see me do this. Everybody and we here's the biggest thing, and I don't know if this is a assignment in my life. I'm I, I wish it wasn't, but Sometimes I almost think it's more rampant in the church than it is in the world. 
I feel like there's some people in the world that are more content with who they are even though they don't think they're anything. But somehow when we put on the badge of Christianity, we think we're licensed now to strive constantly and earn places and get all this praise and be the one that does everything and everybody recognize and notice it. But because he loves you, at some point, he's going to tell you you're in the wrong seat. Because you'll never know what it feels like for him to come to you and tell you you need to move up in seats. If you're always trying to sit in a seat past where you need to be. See, we don't ever want to hear this in the kingdom. We all think, well, there's no, we're all even at the cross and we're all, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. That's true. At the cross, where mercy invades our life, we're not all equal in how we honor God with our lives. We're not. We thank God that it says everybody's even, but in heaven he says we're going to earn rewards based on how we lived our life. And so we're so quick to try to interject ourselves to the best seat. And use the license that, well, I'm his favorite, which we all are his favorite. But he, we, you'll never know what it feels like for him to say, hey, come sit over here. If, you're, if he's always having to tell you, hey, come sit down here right now. It's not time to sit up there yet. Come sit right here. God's always telling us to take the best seat. God's always telling us to take the seat that gives us the most influence and the most favor with all the people. Sometimes we think that, we say that, and it's not true. Sometimes he's telling us to sit in a seat of humility and wait so we'll know what it really means to be exalted. We know what it really means to be lifted up and raised up. And it's all just that rampant fear of man. That's trying to dictate your life. Because it's miserable. Constantly jockeying for your seat. It's like, I saw this video the other day of these two men. They were 350 pounds each probably. Anybody see them? They're playing musical chairs with one chair left. That's what some of us look like in the kingdom. Every second. Anybody ever play musical chairs? stressful, isn't it? When you get down to that last chair, it's stressful. And some of us literally act like there's only one seat, and we have to have it. When if I can let you have that chair, I can let you have that chair, I'm okay. I can walk around. I can let you have that chair. I can let you have that chair. He's got my chair. He's got my seat. He's going to tell me where to go, and he's going to tell me what to do, and he's going to put me in the position I need to be in to do what he's called me to do. I don't have to take yours. I don't need your chair. These guys were going around this chair. I remember playing. Man, when you're on the back side of the chair, your blood pressure goes up so high, right? Your heart's racing. Like, am I going to get by there? We live like that just constantly. Am I going to be 
in the right place at the right time to get all of the right stuff and the praise of man. We live in such anxiety and such turmoil about it. You never feel that if you'll let him inform your worry. Because his words are so full, you'll never confuse them and think that they're going to be less than or lacking and you're going to have to fight for something. If you're anxious, if you're stressed, if you're always trying to position yourself, you're listening to the wrong voice. Psalm 119. 35, guide me in the path that you please, that please you, for I take delight in all that you say. Cause my heart to bow before your words of wisdom and not to the wealth of this world. Help me turn my eyes away from illusions so that I pursue only that which is true. Drench my soul with life as I walk in your path. NIV, the end of it says, turn my eyes, verse 37, away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. We go back to Saul. He thought he was keeping what was worthless, and he thought he was destroying what was worthless. He totally missed it up. He was supposed to destroy it all because it was all worthless. What are you saving that you think is worthy that he's telling you to sacrifice to know what's really worthy? Let me end with this. How to be miserable. Think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinion of others. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your own views on everything. Sulk if people are not grateful to you for favors shown them. Never forget a service you have rendered. Shirk your duties if you can. Do as little as possible for others. And you will be miserable. Unknown source. That's so funny and humorous and true. But those are symptoms. And I dare say when reading that funny, hilarious description of how to be miserable, some of you could say, hey, I resemble that remark. Hey, don't say that. I resemble that. Hey, I constantly determine my worth on, based on the opinions of other people. 
I'm constantly frustrated based on whether or not I'm appreciated enough or not. I constantly am left searching when people don't praise me enough for what I've done. Those are all symptoms of trying to find your worth from the wrong voice. Everybody stand up with me today as we leave. Look how good I did. Please praise me for doing good today. <laughs> Come on, I want to hear it. I want at least 12 people to stop me on my way out of here today and tell me, Pastor, you did a wonderful job. You stopped right at 12.30 today. Randy won't do it. Randy says he tries to keep me humble. He used to tell me how good I was doing all the time, and I said, don't do that. It might get the big head. So now he tells me every week how awful it was. <laughs> Everybody needs a father-in-law like that to help you in life. Prayer team, will you come today as we prepare to dismiss Give people an opportunity in just a moment to pray. So much wrestling, so much anxiety, so much stress comes from trying to find our worth from the wrong sources. And no one has the ability to do that. If I had everybody raise your hand in here who has been rejected and through that rejection you thought you were going to die, we would almost all raise our hands. Isn't that crazy? Rejection by a boyfriend or a girlfriend, rejection by a friend, rejection by somebody. It is painful. It hurts, doesn't it? But to the degree that it devastated us was the, to degree, the degree that we put too much worth in it. The things I'm most thankful for in my life, rejection is way at the top of the list. I'm dead serious. If you constantly try to avoid it and do everything to never be rejected then you'll never know what it feels like to be rejected and survive and know you did not have to have their approval. But some of you need to take a chance. You need to take a leap. You need to keep bow you need to quit bowing to things that don't have the power to define you. You're letting so many things dictate your life. You're spending just countless time and hours just searching and searching and walking around that chair and you're so worried. You're so worried at work. Somebody, you got to know what everybody's doing. You got to know what, I almost told the parable today about the people that, the laborer, the guy who owned a vineyard and a property, he went out to, and I can't even tell the story from Scripture now because I've told it so many times in nowadays terms that I always want to tell it that way. It's my own parable now. And I always tell it that the guy goes to Home Depot because if anybody's in construction, you know that 
if you go to Home Depot at 6 o'clock in the morning, there's day laborers out in the parking lot waiting for work. And you can just pick them up and take them and do a job. A lot of times there's day laborers waiting for work at different ones of these construction stores. So you, these people are waiting for work, and they, they, the owner picked a couple of them up in the morning and took them to do work and made a deal with them what they worked for that day. And then they went, he went back around lunchtime and had to get some supplies and got some more workers and brought them back to the field. And then he went and got some more workers in the afternoon. And then they're getting ready to quit working. They're going to stop working at like 6 o'clock. And at 5 o'clock, he goes and picks up a few more workers and they come and work an hour. And at the end of all of it, he pays everybody. And you know what he pays everybody? He pays everybody exactly the same. And the people that got there early in the morning got upset. Because the people that worked one hour made the same. But throughout the story, the people in the morning are the only people he told what he was going to pay them. And they agreed. All those other people agreed, didn't even know what they were going to get. I've talked people through accidentally seeing somebody's paycheck at work. You see somebody's paycheck at work, and then you're depressed for four days. Or you want to quit your job because it's not fair. That's when you know you're being informed by the wrong voices about what your worth is. I don't understand what you do and what you make and what your agreement is has anything to do with what I do and what I make and what my agreement is. Comparison. We got a joke at the house, because I said it one Sunday, so now they talk about it all the time. Who's the tallest pygmy? Pygmies are short people, by the way. God, we love you today. We thank you that you're able to reveal to us who we are. Thank you that you put it in us to have a desire to be known by you. Thank you that you put a desire in us to be defined by you, to be uh, our, our worth, to be determined by you. Thank you that you put that desire in us. And God, we just repent in every area of our life where we've let that desire be distorted and perverted and be, and be focused on some other source of worth. God, we can make it pretty and we can make it like it's just an accidental misplacement or whatever, but that's the same thing the Israelites did when they built the golden calf. What it is is it's idol worship. It's idol worship. It's idolatry. It's putting things to define our worth, and it doesn't belittle you and it doesn't hurt you, and we don't build you up by worshiping you right, but it diminishes us. And it limits us. We're going to dismiss in just a minute, but if anybody would like to come and pray this morning, we have prayer team up here. You like to say, man, I find myself way too concerned about the things around me. I find myself way too overwhelmed looking around at the opinions of other people. Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Redemption Life Church. Be sure to stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Redemption Life.